and welcome to the Scotta Chronicast, the podcast which discusses all things relating to medieval Scotland. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Buchanan. This is episode three, and I am excited to be joined by Dr. Victoria Hodgson. Welcome to the Scotta Chronicast. Hi, Kate. How are you today? Uh, I am very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Of course. Would you um, like to tell everybody a little bit about yourself as an introduction? Sure. Uh, so I am a medieval historian. I specialize in um, monastic history in medieval Scotland, uh, really with an outward focus. So um, mostly what I look at is how monastic communities interact with their localities in a nutshell. Great. And are you teaching at the moment? I am, yes. Uh, I work for the University of Bristol, so I'm their teaching associate in medieval history at the moment. Um, And then I am currently in lockdown, but (laughs) we'll be heading back (laughs) to Bristol, (laughs) hopefully at the end of the summer, touch wood. (laughs) Yes. Lockdown has... (laughs) As it's all in weird places. <laughs> so um, I actually don't think, I, like I've known you for, for a long time now, um, but I don't think we've ever really talked about how you got into got into studying medieval Scotland. I asked Katie the same thing, or I, I approached her and was like, I don't, I don't think I, I know. Like I met you guys and then we just kind of like... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> knew that you were studying medieval Scotland, and it never, like, never really came to the to the discussion of like, well, how did you actually get here? How how what was your journey to studying medieval Scotland? Yeah, um, a bit of an interesting one. So, um, when I was in undergrad, I suppose kind of what I was always really interested in was people, um, and how mm-hmm. people's identity, how they understand themselves and represent themselves. But I was interested in that general theme in a lot of different areas so I was never quite sure what I wanted to specialize in really um I actually initially wanted to do my undergrad dissertation on uh, black power in America oh but cool for, yeah so <laughs> um they're basically kind of what happens was it wasn't possible to get um supervision for that kind of topic at that time right so um I thought about what other areas of history I was really interested in. And yeah, medieval was just something that I'd I'd always been quite passionate about, Um, kind of from a young age, you know, Mm -hmm. these endless trips to castles and cathedrals and that kind of thing. And it's just always really been ingrained, I suppose, in my understanding of history. So yeah, I um, decided to to go down the, the medieval route instead. And obviously I'm very glad I did because <laughs> uh, yeah. I stuck with it for quite a long time now. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm always amazed at how um, how important visiting like historical sites like castles and cathedrals is um, for most of us um, in this journey. Like it's really a foundational part of it. Yeah, well, I think being able to visualise things is so important mm. for, for getting you interested at a young age in things so I don't know I suppose a lot of history seems quite abstract to you 
unless you can kind of picture the physical aspects right. of it. Yeah. And just being able to see like the space that people were in. And yeah, that's, it's, it's yeah. really important. Yeah. I always find that interesting, obviously, because I'm a, you know, castle studies person. So, so. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so you um, you did history as an undergrad, right? I did, yes. Um, and then I did a master's in research and then my PhD. Cool. So what was the first um, sort of topic within medieval Scottish history that you really um, tackled? I was actually initially much more of a political historian. So I was interested um, in kind of family identities, local power structures. Um, I actually wrote my master's dissertation on the Earldom of Athol. Okay. That's really how I got into my specialism now, though, because it was when I was looking at the kind of political side of it that I came across this whole topic or this whole world, really, of religious institutions and religious patronage. And Mm -hmm. it was just something that I immediately found fascinating. Um, so that it just kind of from the, and now it seems natural looking back now, but at the time it seemed like quite a weird jump. <laughs> yeah, they're they're so interconnected with all the the political um, landscape of any medieval world, but particularly in medieval Scotland. That it yeah, it is it is a very logical um, leap to go um, to that. Yeah, I think as well. It was just I mean. It was just something I'd never really studied um, in any depth. And mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, that type of belief system was something I didn't really know a lot about. And I just found it so absorbing that it just, for me, it just it seemed like the logical next step. Yeah, yeah. Something that you have to be, yeah, if you're going to going to embark on the major research of a PhD, like yeah. <laughs> something that has your curiosity, like, really gripped um as well as being you know something that you just genuinely enjoy learning about is really important (laughs) yeah definitely or it could be a long long four years (laughs) yes a long journey Uh, not that it isn't a long journey anyway but it could be even longer (laughs) cool so um with your phd then um tell us a little bit more about um, your research for that? Yes, yeah, so my PhD thesis was a case study of Cooper Angus Abbey. So it was a really mm-hmm. in-depth study of one particular institution, but trying to use that as almost like a jumping off point for what can be done um, elsewhere. I mean, I, I chose Cooper Angus because the surviving documentation is so good compared to yeah. the vast majority of these houses. But I was just so struck by how little had been done with it there just seemed like yeah. so much scope for what you could do with the material and um, so I really kind of had my my pick of what I wanted to focus on really with that um, but yeah it was a lot of that was there was kind of a couple of different strands in that I mean I was looking at land ownership land use that type of thing you know environmental economic and um, but then also that kind of socio-cultural side so how do the monks and the locals interact with each other? How do they understand each other? Um, right. And then also how, you know, how do ideas kind of take root and spread? So, you know, cultural ideas, religious belief, how, how does that all come together, I suppose? 
was what I was really trying to get to. Oh, yeah. The importance of being able to have enough documents to like, yeah. do your research <laughs> is oh, so important. I know. Um, and it's it's something that we like, I mean, it's it's a problem for medieval scholars um, everywhere, but like it's particularly um, an issue in Scotland because so many of the sources just disappeared, been destroyed in various ways. Um, so yeah, having that um, that resource base is, is really key. Yeah, absolutely. The the Cooper Angus ones are an interesting one as well because they were actually presumed lost. Um, oh. it's, it's not until around about 1900 um, that they kind of emerge from some back room in a castle somewhere. Um, oh, interesting. So actually, they come into the mix at a relatively late point. <laughs> oh, I didn't realise that. That's really cool. Yeah. The other thing as well is that they, they're not published until the kind of mid-20th century. So oh, okay. the actual edited versions um, escape a lot of the problems of as I'm sure you're aware, the kind of 19th century collections. Um, yes. They, they almost fortuitously dodge that period. Um, oh, so the, the edited versions are excellent. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's just expand on, on the issue with the earlier uh, edited <laughs> collections here just a moment, because I think some of our listeners probably won't be aware. Sure. <laughs> yes. So, um, Late 19th century, then, you get this huge surge um, of interest in medieval Scottish history. Um, and, I mean, the it, it's it's such important work, obviously, um, as you'll know, that goes on at that time of putting together these edited collections of the primary source material that, you know, is really ma- makes it accessible. Um, and I'm sure you've, yeah. I've used certainly a lot. Right. And it- Makes some of the research that we do possible. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the problem is, is that kind of value judgments and um, editing practices that would not be considered acceptable in the modern context are uh, they take place. So things like reordering manuscripts into um, assumed chronological order or. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if you've got two or three different versions of a document or a manuscript, the published version is very often um, a kind of integrated version of those different manuscript traditions, but um, yeah. corrected in inverted commas. And yeah, with really no indication to the reader that what you're looking at has no manuscript authority, essentially. Right. So, yeah, um, the thing is as well for a monastic historian is that if you're talking about a cartulary, then the ordering of the documents are so important. So if you obscure that in the published version, you actually lose the entire perspective almost of the manuscript material. Yeah, no, it's 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 very important. Yeah. And there's just some weird like biases that they kind of put into the edited collections. Yeah. I mean, correct Latin that (laughs) I don't think is quite right, that kind of thing. (laughs) Did it really say that? Because that's cool (laughs) if it did, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And the other thing, like right now in particular, and well, has been an uh, important for me since I've uh, moved uh, back to North America, these are all digitized. And so you can, 
you can go online and you can get these sources easily. So when you're you're doing research from a distance, um, if you're stuck at home and you're doing research, yeah. then you have access to these. You don't actually have access to the the manuscripts, but it's still really important to be like, yeah, I need to really double check all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So don't get me wrong, these publishing clubs are were instrumental in laying the foundations for, you know, generations of historians. It's just having an awareness, I think, of the nature yeah. of the published material is quite important. Yeah, it's not it's not gonna prevent you from using them, but just yeah. you know, <laughs> keep in mind that you might want to double check your facts against the original before yeah, you base yeah. too much of your <laughs> entire theory off of something. Good policy. <laughs> yeah. So um, remind me again what order Cooper Angus was. So that was a Cistercian house. Um, oh, that's what I thought it was. But Yeah. I mean, the Cistercians, I've done a lot of my research since then has been focused on the Cistercian order just because if you're wanting to look at um, kind of cultural exchange and um, how ideas and technologies kind of spread in the medieval period the Cistercians are so interesting because they do have that real almost institutional identity um Mm -hmm. you know obviously houses are not carbon copies of each other but there are Cistercian houses all across Europe that are in contact with each other um and serving as like a conduit for information to spread um so they're they're such an interesting one to focus on, I think. Yeah, so they they have a, a a more unique network than um, sort of like Benedictine or Franciscan monasteries. Yeah. I mean, almost just more a, a stronger sense in themselves that they you know that that deep sense of belonging to something larger, um, mm-hmm. which you know perhaps um, yeah, say the, the Benedictines. It's much it's a looser association rather than. Um, you know that kind of strong institutional identity that I think is quite unique to the Cistercian order because they were their newer um, order in creation right yes Benedictines and Franciscans are quite an, an older older orders Benedictines certainly um so Franciscans are um slightly later kind of more Dominican Franciscan um the Cistercians belong to that reforming drive uh, going on kind of in late 11th, um, early 12th century. Um, mm-hmm. So, But they're the most successful by far <laughs> um, mm-hmm. compared to the their contemporaries. Yeah. And there were quite a few um, Cistercian houses in Scotland, weren't there? Yeah, I think there are 11 in total. Um, yeah, you're probably gonna fact check me on that, but <laughs> I think it's I think it's eleven. <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, Scotland in general uh, is pretty um, heavy on the old monastic house. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes. landmass you're talking about. That's <laughs> true. There are a, a large number of <laughs> monastic <laughs> houses everywhere. So. Yeah, like how much how much land? I mean, you obviously studied Cooper Angus, um, which mm-hmm. is one of the larger ones. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you're what really what we need is we need monastic land holding systematically mm. mapped. Um, you know that's something that needs to take place. You're 
of I mean monastic houses are they're enormously wealthy landholders um but yeah how, just how much of medieval Scotland is in their hands it's a question I'd really love to answer at some point right <laughs> I maybe need a team <laughs> yes yeah because that's a, a a really large portion of of the landscape is actually owned um by monasteries I would say that to be honest the the whole thing is driven by land really um I mean my research certainly it, it has such a strong landscape focus even in areas that you perhaps wouldn't expect it I mean people mm-hmm. obviously had a, a particular relationship with the land um and that's can be in terms of you know resource explo- exploitation working the land for agricultural or economic purposes but then you've also got this whole other side of you know cultural meanings that are attached to the landscape um mm-hmm. things like the cult of saints they're so embedded in the physical landscape so if you're talking about these monastic houses who are really economic but also cultural driving forces um being landowners on such an enormous scale that is going to have implications at a lot of different levels yeah that's such so fascinating your research has been super fascinating well thank you <laughs> yeah so you finished your phd and um, have you sort of just continued on with your research or have you kind of taken different tracks or drilled down on particular aspects you didn't have time to complete yeah so um I was um, a postdoctoral researcher for a while at the University of Stirling working on Arbroath Abbey. So okay. that was great because it's almost um, a different type of monastic house in that it's this kind of purposely established cult centre for uh, Thomas Beckett. So mm-hmm. it's got that whole aspect of the identity, but plus it's... Um, almost kind of takes over, not so much takes over, but is established in such close vicinity to um, St. Vigens. So you've got that kind of older cult landscape as well. Right. And then you've got an entirely different institutional identity than what I'd been working on because that's a Tyrannensian house, which is a whole other ballgame almost because, Mm. um, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, the Tyrannensian order in Scotland have you know, don't really have any links uh, to the Tyrannensians in France, that they have a, their own kind of um, Scottish Tyrannensian identity. Um, Interesting. You know, connected with Kelso. So, yeah, there was like a lot of other really interesting um, kind of aspects to that house that I hadn't got to work on really. Um, and it was good as well to see the comparisons. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that stuck out to me was that based on the surviving records, it seems like laid burials at Cooperangus Abbey are a lot more common than burial at our growth. But Oh, interesting. Yeah, but confraternity membership, so um, kind of uh, prayers um, for the deceased, these types of things are much more common at our growth than at Cooperangus. So you, you almost, you get a different spiritual service. <laughs> um, right. So yeah, there was, it was, re- it was interesting to see that, that we'll, kind of what people want or get from the house is, is slightly different. Yeah, that's very interesting. So yeah, some, something I'd like to pursue at some point. 
Yeah. So the maybe dreaded question of somebody that's <laughs> relatively recently finished their PhD. Um, are you planning on on publishing this or um, in, in what way are you are pursuing that if you are? Yeah. So what I've focused on up to now is really taking aspects of my research and then developing areas of the PhD that I didn't get to spend as much time on. Um, the good thing for me was that because I managed to um, cover on, cover quite a large range of things in my PhD, there were a lot of different avenues. It was, it was quite nice to, there were pieces that lifted out very easily to be developed further. So um, mostly focusing on kind of individual publications, but the... Mm-hmm. I am currently focusing on working up the whole thing into a book. I'm just trying to figure out in my head what I want the book to be, I suppose, at the yeah. moment, um, what I want it to do. So that's, uh, but then you get, you get to a point as well, don't you, where you've, I feel like it was so long ago, even though it wasn't, that I've almost, yeah. I've done so much since then that it's quite strange to go back. Um, right your PhD and have to reread it <laughs> you almost want to like redo it all because you're yeah. like oh if I just like knew what I know now then <laughs> yeah I mean your ideas sense. have kind of developed and moved on and yeah gotten so much yeah diverse almost um since then that they're probably the book is probably not gonna um really look like the PhD so yeah I want to I do yeah. I want to take a bit of time and make sure I get it right I think yeah that's that's good. Um, I it also took me a long time to figure out like how like not this is the book that I potentially plan is like in anywhere near ever being produced. <laughs> <laughs> but it took me a long time to figure out like okay, what well, what do I actually want the book to look like? Because I could see a couple of articles coming out of the PhD, but it's like okay, but there's so much information here. Um, but what would I want? What would make a good book? You know, yeah, it's not just because your your PhD thesis is it it's it's a unique thing you know it's yeah um, and it's it's designed um f- not necessarily for like common readership yeah it's it's its whole it's its whole unique thing and it's a great experience um to be able to produce it but like yeah really figuring out how to convert that into into a book is 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 really challenging yeah <laughs> I think for me as well, because my PhD was a case study of one abbey, I don't yeah. want my book to be something that would only interest you if you are want to read specifically about the history of Cooper Angus Abbey. Right. <laughs> I'm quite keen for it to do more. I want it to be a case study that informs further work. So I, w- I want yeah. to make sure that there's, I suppose, as much contextualisation as there can mm-hmm. be if that makes sense. So yeah, it's really important for me to be able to um, kind of draw wider comparisons and say something bigger other than this is the history of one particular abbey. Right. Yeah, that's in, I'm sort of in a similar place in that my um, research was very, very focused um, on Angus. And I kind of want (laughs) I want the book to be more than people that just want to know about Angus (laughs) yeah I mean the professional advice I have received though is that I need to tone down my grandiose ideas and just get it done (laughs) so 
maybe I should take a more practical approach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is, there is a point there. It's like, it's better to have it done, I guess. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I also kind of want to enjoy the process of writing the book or making it into a book a bit more than perhaps I enjoyed writing the PhD. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. And you also, you want it to kind of naturally intersect with kind of what you're working on now as well Mm -hmm. so um yeah I want it to I don't want it to be something that seems quite far removed from where I am now yeah exactly you want it to to still resemble what you're what you're working on yeah yeah so do you have any um current projects um that you're you're working on right now yeah I'm kind of simultaneously working on two projects which are gonna sound really different but they they for me they really are just like I say it's just about land um and what people do with it so um one thing that I've been working on quite a bit recently is the late medieval monastic economy so um kind of what I'm really interested in is say post 1400 Um, what are these houses doing with all this land? Because you're in a context where the the wool trade is in decline. I mean, Scottish wool exports have collapsed and they never recover. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of these abbeys, a lot of their wealth, as you'll know, is tied up in that trade. And then you've got that kind of wider context of climate deterioration, building pressure on resources. So what does that mean for these monastic landholders in in that context because I, I think that when you say you know what what is the basis of monastic wealth wool is the kind of immediate answer but is it really right. in the late medieval period so that's that's something I'm pursuing um oh, that's super interesting yeah it is I think I mean as soon yeah. as you say um uh, working on economic history you can see people's eyes glaze over <laughs> But <laughs> I think I think it's important. I mean, the thing is as well, yeah. it, it has such a knock-on effect for how the re- the relationship between these abbeys, you know, with their neighbouring lay landowners, you know, their, right. their neighbours, if you're talking about, um, you know, you get this sense almost, well, I have from my research so far, that there is a building tension over access to, you know, pa- common pasture um, uh-huh. that kind of thing so um, fishing rights seem to all of a right. sudden become much more important um, based yeah. on the kind of records you get in legal disputes so yeah it has this kind of so- knock-on social effect I think that's really interesting mm-hmm. yeah that's super super interesting that's cool yeah and that like you know goes towards your your focus on wanting to like look at how how the monastic orders really integrated into the the local society so that's cool and it kind of it feeds in almost to the other ongoing project I have Uh Um, well I think it does anyway this is going to sound like a leap but something that I'm really interested in is um, the cult of saints and how almost these cults are landscape features so the way you can almost um inherit proprietorship of a saint through ownership of a territory that's Mm. kind of conceived of as belonging to that saint um so 
I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in what the dynamic is if you're talking about one of these reformed continental monastic orders who have come into ownership of what is, you know, has a long tradition of being a saint's territory, but they don't have a link really to that saint. You know, if you're talking about a local saint that as a kind of international order, the Cistercians are not interested in. How, on a local level, how are they interacting with the fact that, you know, those cultural values are so embedded in the land? And again, what's the social impact of that? How does that impact their relationship with their neighbours? Oh, that's super, super interesting. Yeah, and I I totally see how that's that's connected. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Well, I I really look forward to to your 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 new research um coming out um whenever it does. Um it's super exciting. Well, thank you. I might be looking to pick your brains at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome to. <laughs> However, they may or may not be helpful, but you're welcome to to pick at them. <laughs> Yeah, great. Um, so have you been able to do um, much focus on um, monastic studies in your teaching that you've been able to do? Or is that kind of not really been brought into the to the classroom yet? No, I mean, the good thing about Bristol is that they've been great with giving me quite a lot of license with incorporating um, my research into my teaching. Um, I mean, they're they're really keen on things being very research driven um, and keep making sure that the things they're teaching is really up to date with where the scholarship is now so there has been um, a bit quite a bit of scope for kind of incorporating more of that kind of angle into um, what are already established medieval Mm -hmm. courses. Uh, The good thing as well is there's actually quite a lot of expertise anyway at Bristol on things like saints cults um, they're they're big on um environmental humanities as well so oh great uh, it's it's a really it's a really good department to be part of excellent well that's wonderful yeah it's always nice to be able to to bring some of your own um personal research into the classroom i think it really adds flavor um and helps (laughs) yeah i think um as well i mean if it's something that you're passionate about it just comes across yeah. I mean yeah <laughs> you you always remember your kind of teachers who their enthusiasm was just infectious so mm-hmm. that's kind of you see me kind of striding around <laughs> waving <laughs> my arms <laughs> talking passionately about land and all kinds of things <laughs> yeah no, and that's it's very true, and it's like it's a lot easier to to try to be infectious, as it were, yeah. um, for a, maybe a bad term for this time as we're in like a pandemic. But whatever. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, when you're when you're talking about your own personal research, so it's um, that's good. That's good, and it's like the discussion you get um, from the students as well can like really be stimulating for getting your own ideas um, in order. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the the discussions that I have in seminars, we I go away thinking, oh, I never really come at it from that angle before. Um, mm-hmm. Teaching is so useful for it's almost like just being in a conference every day talking things through and yeah getting people's input um it's been interesting for me as well you know as 
someone who came from um, like a, a Scottish university background and as I mm-hmm. am essentially a kind of Scottish historian um, being in a an English um, university and seeing mm-hmm. the, the kind of different take on subjects that I thought were I was very familiar with but then just come at from a slightly different perspective has been has been really right. good as well. Yeah, I imagine that's um yeah, that really helps in in making sure that you have a broader broader look on things. That's cool. One thing I wanted to ask you. Sure. Do you have a favorite monastic house uh, for, <laughs> uh, from, a, from a visiting, not that we can really go out to these places right now, but in the future, hopefully, we'll actually be able to go explore um, some of these historical sites um, again. Um, do you have a favorite monastic house um, that you like to visit? Well, I feel a little disloyal here because <laughs> <laughs> the houses that I would say I'm most interested in from an academic perspective, I would not recommend for visiting. Um, <laughs> if you look up Cooperangus Abbey, uh, <laughs> a picture of what's left, um, and not that I want to damage the economy of uh, <laughs> for tourists, but yeah, I mean, not not much to see. I think, to be honest, again, this is kind of disloyal, but probably my kind of favourite monastic house that I visited is Revo Abbey in Yorkshire. Um, oh, okay. Just because the just the whole, I mean, what's the, the the actual ruin itself is gorgeous, but also the the whole setting um, mm-hmm. that it sits in the landscape. I mean, it's it's just the whole thing's just stunning. That's probably one of yeah, probably one of my favourites. I actually um, I went to Dundrennan recently um, mm-hmm. as well, and I thought that was that was a, again um, the kind of whole overall setting of uh, Dundrennan I I like that one as well those so I'll give you that's an English and a Scottish one (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) to balance it back up (laughs) yes well thank you very much for joining me today to chat on the Scottochronicast this has been super fun of course thank you so much for having me yeah well I have enjoyed our our conversation and I really I do I really look forward to to more of your research because I find it fascinating anytime anytime Thank you for joining us on the Scotta Chronicast. Please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow our account on Twitter, at Scotta Chronicast. Our music is Ex to Lux Oratur by Gaeta. Thanks for listening.